the story for Asia is amazing for the next five years. It's actually the rest of Asian countries outside of China doing what China used to do for 20 years. And there's rapid development because all these countries want to become the next China. All these countries can see, wow, if we organize our institutions better, if we reduce corruption a bit, if we build the right infrastructure um, and uh, because of the cheap labour and young population um, and the opportunity of factories moving away from China on the margin, we can actually do well. They can all see it and the aspiration of people of Asia that they want to have a better life as well, like anyone else. So it's a huge opportunity for investing when evaluation is cheap. I'm Dr. Joseph Lai. I'm the founder and also chief investment officer of Ox Capital. We are focused on emerging market equities uh, with a special expertise into Asia in particular. Its emerging markets are basically uh, countries which are in most cases developing countries and the bulk of it is actually Asian countries in the next five or ten years. I mean, this is one of the most interesting asset classes in terms of making money. Um, in Asia, most Asian countries are just like just climbing up the ladder, you know. The second thing is um, the valuations. The valuation is very cheap. There's growth, and a lot of these countries, thirdly, can actually deal with uh, inflation a bit better than developed markets. And in fact, during times of sort of more prolonged inflation, if you look at the history of markets, emerging markets generally can do better than developed markets, particularly those countries which actually produce commodities. Um, so they benefit from the rising cost of energy. They benefit from the rising cost of minerals. I mean, Australia would do okay as a result of that as well. Don't get me wrong, but, but when I look around, I can see countries like Indonesia, they benefit from the rise of commodity. We, I suspect we've, we've, we've got a good old, at least five years of strong, sort of high level of commodity prices because of underinvestment in the last 10 years. The world's still growing. Emerging markets still growing. There's literally 5 billion people on this planet still developing economically and they need all these commodities and energy. Another more nuanced story is this, is that China is going to grow slower. I mean, there's no doubt because the base is big and also the easy growth is more or less over. Easy growth was simply that, you know, factories, people opening, opening up factories in parts of China, like in Guangdong, in close to Shanghai, you know, have lots of migrant workers from China move from the farms, rural areas moving to the cities. I mean, in the peak, it's like literally 15 million rural workers moving to the uh, cities of China every year to fill these factories. It's amazing, right? So during that period of rapid industrialization, um, rapid factory construction, uh, outsourcing, it's amazing because people suddenly the wages just People first, first of all got jobs, and second of all, the wages kept going up, and that's easy growth. I think that period is over because first of all, the, all a lot of the rural workers has, has been exhausted, and nowadays not everyone wants to be a factory worker anymore in China. And thirdly, there's geopolitics, which means that incrementally, the factories, at least on incrementally, when they want to put new factories in, they may not want to put 100% in China. But China itself is actually climbing the technological ladder and they're very focused on developing their own industries through the desire to develop and also th through a fear of um, getting excluded to the, by being the access to you know, Western technology. So they're investing a lot there 
they'll get there eventually, just take a bit of time. So it's interesting to look for companies which are climbing the ladder in China. And if you can find those, those are the champions of China for the next five or 10 years. It's like owning a champion company like Tencent. Tencent is a big Chinese company, right? Some people, most people heard of it. WeChat, you know, um, game. It's like buying a Tencent 15 years ago if you can find a champion technology company in China today. That's why, why, what, what we've spent the bulk of our effort doing. And don't get me wrong, we still like Tencent, but we also want to look for the other bits, which are more interesting. But the other side of it is that as there's more factories getting built outside of China, these countries which are doing that are just growing the same way that China did 15, 20 years ago. I remember going to Dong, uh, Guangdong and you know, Dongguan, factory workers like, you know, lined up doing sewing shirts and stuff like that. And look, very bad pollution then, but um, in China. But it's just rapid industrialization. I mean, if you look at part of Asia today, that's happening, right? Like if you look at Vietnam, that's happening. I mean, each year, you know, the number of people, uh, migrant workers going to Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. I mean, it's close to, it's not quite half a million, but it's heaps of people going there, working in factories, a few hundred dollars US wage per, per, per month, doing pretty much the same thing as what uh, the people in Guangdong did. Population of Vietnam is like 100 million people, roughly. So they're going through this easy phase of development. And in Indonesia, they're doing the same as well. There's a bit of reshoring of factories back to Taiwan. Um, India, interesting, exports picking up. Investing in China, I think, requires a lot of the appreciation of the nuances and, and the experience to appreciate you know, what is going on. Look, it's a huge country and, and, and it's extremely difficult to fully interpret. Um, but you know, having invested in China for a long time, it's important to realize that there's multiple cycles at work. You know, in recent years, I mean, there's been um, quote unquote crackdowns on various industries. But the reality is there's been ongoing crackdowns in bursts in China ever since the opening up of China in 1979. Really, it's more a result of a rapidly growing economy um, and when industries grow so fast, there tend to be some dysfunctionalities. I mean, the government, rightly or wrongly, believe, yep, they can see this industry is not growing well, it's got some distortions or some, you know, it's not leading to a good outcome for the society or for, for the banking sector. So they would have this thing called crackdowns and really it's it's actually reforms. I mean, these are reforms of the various sectors of the economy. But when the crackdown is over, the rules of engagement will be clearer. And it's clearer also to the industry participants what the regulators actually want to see. Um, because, you know, without clearer rules, clear rules of engagement, these entrepreneurs, they do whatever they, 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 can, they need to do to win, which in some cases is actually not good for, for each other or for the, for the society. With uh, the slowdown in the Chinese economy and also the COVID lockdowns, um, unemployment for young people in China has gone up a lot. You know, because of that, it is uh, quite a bit of um, pressure for the regulator to actually relax monetary policy and also relax the regulatory tightening. And so both of these are happening at the moment and, um, and we're seeing sort of a recovery, uh, quite a quick recovery actually in, in, in the Chinese economy. 
And then another one is just simply Indonesia. We just thought that Indonesia was a fantastic idea as a country which actually have been under most people's radar for a long time. Commodity prices have helping them and actually the country's gone through multiple years of reforms, economic reforms that will help them for the next five or ten years and we suspect it's probably one of the more prospective countries going forward. Indonesia is a very interesting market because it's just a huge population, young population who are aspirational. I mean, they're all getting access to the smartphone, so they know like what good looks like, like what a good outcome looks like for them economically. Uh, with economic reform and also the mo this mobile phone pen you know, penetration, which naturally creates new industries, right? With mobile phones, smartphones uh, bring with it new internet businesses. You know, one of the companies we like is this company called called Mappy. Yeah, so it's basically a distributor, partner for a lot of the global brands. It's listed in Jakarta, this stock. Indonesia has lots of consumers, they're young, they're aspirational as we said, but distributing products in Indonesia is not that straightforward. I mean, there's probably, you know, red tape that may not be easy to maneuver for foreign companies. And also, Indonesia is um, an archipelago, lots of islands. I mean, it's hard to get the products to different places. So what Mappy does is that it partners with the foreign brands to bring the products into Indonesia. They partner with more than 150 brands globally and the brands are like that we know. I mean brands like Calvin Klein, um, Nike, Adidas. So for every piece of garment or shoes that these companies sell in Indonesia, we basically get a cut of it because we help them sell it. You know, so this stock is set to do well. I mean, the earnings is likely to grow by probably 40% a year for the next two years because Indonesia is opening up post-COVID and the economy is doing well. Um, and the stock is probably still around 20 times earnings. When we first added to it, it was about 15 times earnings. You know, there are lots of these interesting, attractively valued stocks in emerging markets, which you just can't imagine to exist in developed markets. Um, and, and MAPI is not, you know, is, is, is actually the leader in the field. We're not talking about 30-year player. We like, you know, China as well, um, because just the valuation has been very cheap. So there's one particular company which is um, we liked, and it's gone up quite a bit already, but you know, it's called um, AK, AK Medical. It's a leader in orthopedic implants, so your knee joints, your hip joints. It does the 3D printing of the joints as well um, for the bit more bespoke sort of applications for the joint replacements. China had this crackdown on the hospital sector because I mean you know a lot of these industries it can be quite opaque and in years gone by there's a lot of distortions in the system so you know salespeople kickbacks and not necessarily the best products get sold in the hospitals uh, and the products are more expensive than they need to be because there's an extra layer. So Chinese government have to, they want to improve healthcare coverage for the people, so they clean up the system. And so the, the result is actually, it's likely that a lot of the foreign companies, which actually were the high, the most expensive ones, um, they are gonna lose market share going forward. And it's actually companies like AK Medical are gonna win market share. You know, they're gonna, grow the market share from 20% to maybe 25, 30% quite quickly. 
um, the stock price because of the negative sentiment towards um, Hong Kong or China and also because of the crackdown on the healthcare sector has gone from like $25 Hong Kong last year a share um, to when we added to it, it was like $3.80. So now the stock I think is about $6.80 now, like it's gone up quite a bit. And it's companies like this with like long-term story, long-term growth dynamic, good company, very, very cheap valuation that we like. Um, I think, you know, the story in China is one of, you know, what, you know, self-improvement as opposed to the easy, you know, just buy whatever, you know, consumption because it's going to grow. I just don't think that's going to be the, the play. It's going to be, you know, it's better be something that's good. Um, and if it's good, I guess, you know, do well. Um, and it's quite interesting. Um, still, I mean, today the valuations of a lot of these companies are still very cheap, despite the recent bounce in the markets. Early in the year, most people were still very positive on the semiconductor stocks in the world because, I don't know, like it's the world's changing, we're all using semiconductors to do everything, Internet of Things, AI. They were very negative. With the COVID stimulus and the working from home, a lot of the demand for semiconductors in the smartphones, in the PCs, even cloud computing has been brought forward. You know, the stimulus money, I mean, a lot of people use the money to buy notebook computers and TVs and, and smartphones, right? But now we're on the, on the other side of it. Working from home, yeah, we're still doing it, but it's less than before. Um, smartphone buying is less and um, the cloud, yeah, demand is big because people are working from home, but it's sort of not growing as much as before. The number of PCs sold before COVID was about 250 million units a year globally. During COVID, because of all these dynamics, it went to about 340. So you tell me, is it going to stay there? <laughs> but most people don't think like that. Most people, yep, that's a safe. So now we're seeing the semiconductor stocks in the last few months selling off, and we've made a lot of money actually hedging the portfolio using that instrument. So um, Taiwan, we, we, we shorted quite extensively actually. Now we're probably time to think about reversing. We, we actually liked energy, I mean, end of last year. Uh, we were a little bit early, but then we liked it end of last year because we liked the idea of natural gas as a transitional fuel for carbon neutral. Um, so that's a growth angle to it. The reality is, I mean, even if we go, like really follow the plan to carbon neutral by 2050, which I believe we should, to move away from coal, we need a transitional fuel and that and, and natural gas based on most people's most experts uh, estimates uh, demand for that for the globally would still continue for the next almost two decades so there's growth there but most people didn't want to own these businesses because it's seen as negative ESG right and to us I thought well if we can find a good company that's spending a lot of their effort to try to improve the ESG spending a lot of the cash flow in renewables and has a good natural gas portfolio like why not think about you know, the move to carbon neutral, we do need to use commodities. I mean, if we are to build these solar panels, we build EVs, uh, power grid, like to replace fossil fuel, you know, to electrify the world, we need certain commodities, right? To actually deprive these sectors of capital actually is counterproductive. The medium to longer term, inflation will likely be a more prominent feature of our economies and the reason 
multifold, but the main one is just the, you know, we've underinvested as the as global industries um, on upstream resources. I mean, commodities, energy. So as a result, it requires a cycle, you know, for the capex, capital expenditure cycle to catch up. The second is just a bit of um, fragmentation in the world. I mean, you know, in the last 30 years or longer, uh, we've been used to the world globalizing more and more. And it, what, what I mean by that is simply that, you know, we can buy products from whichever is the cheapest. If it's from, you know, Malaysia, we'll go to Malaysia. If it's from then China, we'll go to China. And then, and then that actually is not good for controlling inflation. It's inherently more inflationary. The world's slowing quite quickly, I think. And as it slows, yep, you see, we'll see prices weakening, labor market maybe start to be less tight. Uh, but at the end of it, what is the easiest policy option for the central bankers um, when we talk about recession again? when the inflation is not such a big problem, and it appears. Bearing in mind, we're still having underinvested in our upstream resource. We're still suffering from fragmentation of the world. And money printing comes again. So the inflation comes back up. So it's more, it's, it's like a stop-go situation. You know, I actually was a medical doctor before I went into this field of finance. Um, and the story with that was actually quite interesting um, because, you know, as I was going through medicine on the fifth year of my medical study, and it's a six-year course at Sydney University, um, I realized that my calling was not in medicine. My calling was actually in finance. And how did I know that? Well, my brother, he's got this book, you know, Principles of uh, Capital Markets. And he said it's the most boring book that he can ever read but I picked it up and I read it from cover to cover and I thought actually this is very interesting you know the, 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 the theories um, and the understanding behind how things are priced you know what, why are houses priced a certain price why are assets priced at certain prices what was the role of the interest rate has to play to the determination of pricing so I thought understanding that is way more interesting. You know, I finished my medical degree, I worked in the hospital system for a few years as an intern and resident, um, and, and, and then after that decided to actually try something else, tried finance. You know, I took a course to, to, to study business, I did an MBA, um, and upon graduation, it, it was um, a recession. It was hard to get a job. But lucky for me, I was able to secure one with Morgan Stanley um, as a research um, associate analyst in the healthcare team. So that's the linkage. So I was a doctor and um, studying business or finance, um, you know, sort of enabled me to actually join the finance world uh, with some um, healthcare linkage. And the opportunity at my old shop, which was um, Platinum as a management, came up. And I joined them when they started the Asia Fund um, around 2004. It was a great experience, um, you know, working for you know very clever people, uh, people um, you know with uh, real integrity. As as the time progressed, you know, I was given more and more responsibility, uh, looking at the you know stocks in Asia. In 2014, I was managing the whole fund, uh, which I think at that stage was close to four billion Australian dollars. Um, and when I left my old firm, I was managing about $8 billion Australian, roughly around there, across multiple products. Because um, I thought, you know, there's actually a better opportunity elsewhere. Um, and, um, and that's why, that's when I started Ox Capital. So the outcome 
if we do our job properly, uh, the portfolio would own a bunch of good, strong, in many cases, quality businesses um, that's got a growth dynamic that will grow for long term. And we buy them when they're cheap. Most good ideas are stupid to start with. When Steve Jobs came up with the iPhone, most people thought that he was stupid or thought that it was a silly idea. That's Ericsson, that's Nokia, what are you doing? But so, you know, a lot of the good ideas would sound stupid. The culture of a firm that likes to be one step ahead of the market has to be one of open transparency, analytical honesty, psychological safety, um, and a firm that encourages independent thinking. But an interest in investing is great because it opens one's eyes to many different things. It allows you to delve into many different industries and companies. A career in investing is very fulfilling if you're in the right organization and if you are naturally curious, you're an, you're an independent thinker. But, but it's important to you know, take it seriously, you know, do the work, understand you know, your process, your philosophy, and um, do enough work so that you're happy that, uh, you know, to take on the market, even when the market goes against you sometimes. The reality, you know, after years of investing in this market is that investing is hard. I mean, to do it well consistently is hard. In a bull market where everything goes up, it can seem very easy. I mean, but it's rare. I mean, it's actually quite rare to see a market like the NASDAQ. You buy it, you close your eyes, and you get your 15% a year for almost 12 years, 13 years. Um, most cases, the market is very, can be choppy, um, and um, it really tests your resilience and work. You know, if it's an interesting career, lots of people want to do it, and lots of people want to do it well. I guess if there's any advice, I mean, just try to think about what you actually like doing, what you're actually good at. You know, work as hard as you can to, to be the best you can be at it. And uh, sometimes there's sacrifices to be had. But to win, I mean, just like going to the Olympics, I mean, to win, I mean, it's not like, you know, you, it requires a lot of hard work. The person is talented, he's training every day, he or she's training every day, and there's a lot of hard work. Uh, and at the end of all that, you know, you may, the person may still not succeed. Uh, but it is, but you know, the reality is we only live once, so <laughs> take the, your best shot.